Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. And actually, on that note, the newest version of my book, The Mission Driven Life, is out and available for sale at themissiondrivenmom.com. And I added a little more content and I changed the beginning and ending of the book to be much more, I feel like much more relatable to all of us. And that was a change that came to me at the end of last year and I just felt really great about it. So this is kind of the final version, the new cover, Richard Paul Evans endorsement. I think the price is $16.99 at themissiondrivenmom.com. You can head over there and get your copy of that book. I've got a bunch of practical suggestions for things that you can do to apply some of the principles that I teach, but mostly it's meant to guide and inspire you on your mission path and show you next steps to take through the lives of the 10 boom story. But of course, each chapter teaches a law and then three governing principles you can apply right now to better live that law. Just to review those seven laws of life mission are love God, love yourself, love truth, and love humanity. Those are the foundational laws that prepare you to hear God's call for you. They're about putting your own life in order and learning to become a true servant leader, to hear God and work with him, to know how to engage in self-care, self-management, and self-discovery. Those are the principles of self-mastery that are part of self-love. And then loving truth is about becoming more principle-centered in all areas, as many areas of your life as you possibly can. And of course, loving humanity is about becoming a servant leader and what it means to do that, to become a lifelong learner, to engage with people of all faiths and all cultures and all races so that you can love them as individuals and not based on their background. And then to know how to lead them to principle-centered solutions. And then the leadership laws where God really starts to use you as you've prepared yourself to have him use you is to hear the call to courageously execute and to do it again. And with laws five and six, I have more governing principles to help you see what next steps you can take, different ways that you might hear the call from God how you would finish your preparations to serve him and some obstacles you might face as you courageously execute. And then of course you do it again and again. We don't have one mission. We have multiple missions. And so this book is a pretty quick, it's only like 120, 130 pages. It's a pretty quick, easy read. Lots of really inspiring stories. The first time my husband read the first draft I wrote a couple years ago, the first thing he said to me was, this makes me want to be a better man. And boy, that just brought me a lot of happiness that he would say that because there's several stories about Casper Ten Boom, the father in the family, and the kinds of choices that he made were just absolutely phenomenal. And kind of on that note, I want to spend some time on this Introduction to Virtues series that we're going to spend some time in this year. This came about because I have been thinking a lot about patience lately (laughs) and needing to understand it better. 
largely because I keep being asked to be patient in multiple areas of my life where I don't really want to be patient. And so that's been hard. Now, I've there's always been things that I needed to be patient about, but this is just a time in my mind. Um, I would prefer some things to fix themselves faster than they're fixing themselves. So I'm being asked to be patient. So I was getting kind of into a study of that, which led me into a deeper study of virtue. And then I ended up having this conversation. And I think one of the reasons for that was because, ironically, in today's world, of all the things we actually call a virtue, patience is like the the quintessential patience is a virtue. Like we don't even really hardly talk about virtues a whole lot anymore, especially compared to how often they used to be spoken about. But we will say patience is a virtue. And that's a really interesting phrase. What does that mean to say patience is a virtue? Does that mean that it's automatically good? It's automatically important? And so next time we'll spend, we'll start spending more time in different virtues. You can make requests on the, on the podcast page at themissiondrivenmom.com underneath this podcast, or you can get into our Facebook group at the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and request different virtues that you'd like me to cover. But I want to talk today about virtue itself and the virtues and virtue versus vice. These are really interesting ideas that you may not be really familiar with because they're just not taught as predominantly as they used to be. So the idea of virtue and vice, so going all the way kind of back to the beginning, I've mentioned a few times that I own actually a couple copies of the great books of the Western world set that was put together by Hutchins and Adler and some other people at the University of Chicago was printed by uh, Britannica and Encyclopedia Britannica. There's another Harvard Classics that was put together, I think, by Eliot and some other men at Harvard when they went to the um, elective system there in some of the top universities. Anyway, so these publications were made early in the 20th century because there was starting to be a university movement away from some of the original writings from Western history. And part of the reason for that was just because they were often taught in like Latin or Greek and that was rough. And so they weren't as attainable to the average person. And part of the reason was because they seemed kind of boring in the way that they were presented and you were expected to read the whole work. And there's a lot of reasons for it. But the important thing to know is that these collections of quote great books are the seminal works that have made us think the way we think today. We, we don't realize that we stand on a long Western tradition that goes back to the Greeks and to the Bible and that we don't think the same way in the West as they think in the Middle East or the East. We have certain assumptions, certain fundamental ways of being and thinking, and we also don't even realize how... <laughs> Here's an example... William Wilberforce was, you probably know him, was the central figure in abolishing slavery in Britain in the 1700s, kind of leading into the 1800s, I think. And before Wilberforce and his group 
They're often called the Clapham sect, and it's for them that our leadership team is named. We'll do another, I'm going to actually do a Facebook Live here in the next month or two on why it's called the Leadership Clapham Team and what our Clapham Team is doing. If you belong to our Facebook group, you've been meeting them the last month or so, different members of our leadership team. We've la- we, I, I mentioned that I was going to launch it as a primary goal that I had had over the previous year. I mentioned that at the end of our Mothers of Vision celebration event last fall. So it is up and running and functioning and we're plugging these women in and they're, they're posting in our Facebook group and they're building a planner and they're helping with our events and they're curating our content and they're starting our networking. They're just doing phenomenal things. I'm just so grateful to them. And you have to have been through level two in our academy, at least through part one of level two in our academy to join this team. And then you join a committee and make a small contribution to help us. And then you get to participate in our annual retreat and in our trainings every other month. And so that's what this team is about. And then of course you just get to rub shoulders with really incredible women. And it's named for this Clapham sec that that rallied around Wilberforce and helped to end slavery in Britain. So that's not the point. The point about virtue that goes along with this is that one of the things people don't realize is, you know, you read these Dickens books, right? And things just sound so awful. Like there's all these drunks and there's all this ho- these homeless people and, and prostitutes and orphans and horrible boarding schools, just lots of social... Um, What's the word? Lots of, not social upheaval, but lots of poverty and I guess social neglect of the needy. And it was actually Wilberforce and his group that changed the way that people in the West, especially in Europe and America, think about charity. They were involved in over, over 200, over 200 charitable organizations and projects in addition to ending slavery. And so they helped educate people on what the Bible really meant in terms of caring for our neighbor and for our brother and what it means to be brothers and what it means to do charity work. And, you know, now we have all these people who claim that they're not Christian. Who There's a really great speech by Andrew Clavin where he just basically says, we're all Christian and you don't realize you're Christian because you don't claim Christ, but you actually, the, the, the main, the, the, and the critical ways that you think the fundamental assumptions you make about yourself and about the world have their root in Christianity and you just don't even realize it. And so that this Clapham sect was teaching the world a higher way of actually living the Christian code. And so Now it's a very mainstream thing to do, whether you say even believe in God or not, it's the cool thing. It's the right, quote, right thing to give money away, to care for the poor. And that just wasn't done 300, 400 years ago. So these virtues or this concept of virtue and vice goes all the way back to the most ancient writings we have in the Western tradition. And when Adler and his group compiled the great books of the Western world set, they came up with what they called the great ideas. So the first two books, I've probably mentioned this in another podcast. I'm just reviewing for those that don't know. 
they went through all these works and they said, okay, we think as a collective group that these are the most important writings that have made us think and believe and behave the way we do today in the West. And there's specific ideas that come up over and over and over again that these great authors are talking about and arguing about and debating about. And it's really, it's called the great, that has been called the great conversation because it's over these centuries that these men are talking to each other. Now, people feel like some of this is distasteful and they leave it behind. They call it the dead white men because in the Western tradition, we have been, you know, we came from Europe, so we have been predominantly white. And many of these ancient writings are from European, you know, spaces. And it was predominantly men that got an education. We do know instances of women who were educated by awesome dads or sent to schools or whatever. But mostly it was men. And so that's just... These were the ones that were thinking the most deeply about the most important ideas. But it doesn't follow that other people weren't also doing it. It's just their works that we happen to have. And so if we want to understand ourselves, that's really the argument here. If we want to learn from the past, if we want to learn from ourselves, we, we just go back and we, we read what they said. We read their writings. Not because we think they have all the answers. Not because we even always agree but simply because we want to understand how we got here and we want to learn from the past and from the mistakes of our progenitors, right? So that's, that's why they were collected so that they could be, and they were sold, you know, thousands, tens of probably hundreds of thousands of households purchased these works and had them in their home. I don't know how many people read them, but they were trying to bring these works to the average person because they weren't necessarily always being promoted in the universities anymore. Now, like I've said before, in our greatest universities, there's still a lot of great books reading that goes on because they challenge your thinking. They force you to ask yourself important questions you wouldn't probably think about otherwise. They stimulate the mind. They bring different points of view to the fore. They argue for their points of view. And it just changes the way that you think. It hones your ability to think more clearly and more deeply as you are challenged by the way that they write and think. And then, of course, if you layer that with some of the fundamental ideas they talk about, first principles and principles and truth and all of those things, and you continue to believe that there are some things that are always true and right, then, of course, you can have a really elevated self-education. So that's a bit of a tangent on <laughs> virtues. But I just want to spend the next few minutes and introduce you to this idea. So they've got these great ideas of the Western world. They honed in on 102. And one of those ideas is number 97, because they're alphabetical, virtue and vice. So one thing that we know for sure is that the concept of virtue is as old as human writing. Now, however you want to view what happened before human you know, writing, whatever. But as long as human beings have been <laughs> writing things and been intelligent, you know, and, and whatever, we have, you know, from a Christian perspective, that's, you know, from Adam. But the, that point aside, even outside of religious, and this is such an important point, 
The concept of right and wrong and virtue and vice is not essentially a religious idea. And I'm going to explain that to you in just a minute. It's a universal first principle. It is a concept that has found that has been found in all cultures, in all time periods, and it's as old as we can go back to trace ourselves as a human race. So something that is that ingrained in who we are and that is that old and ancient and isn't even necessarily a, a religious idea, I think is really worth exploring and talking about and thinking about because it really speaks to there must be something here. There must really be a fundamental right and wrong and there must be some fundamental first principles that we can all get behind and believe in. And what's also interesting, and I'll tell you more about this in a minute, what's also really interesting about that is that some of these not just the concept of virtue and vice, but what some of the core virtues are is pretty, has been pretty universally accepted in Western history too, which is also quite fascinating. And, you know, for example, um, well, that's, that's, I won't get into that. That's something else. Okay. So I'm predominantly in the Syntopicon for the great books and mere Christianity. And this article on virtue and vice go read it and get on the chat and talk to me about it. That would be awesome. But what it's talking about here is that, again, this idea is very ancient and that the idea of virtue and vice is as old as the human race. Let me see. It says that virtue is good and vice evil seems to go undisputed in the tradition of the great books, even by Machiavelli. I'm not sure if you might know who he is. He wrote The Prince, which is really just this practical guide to how to lead anybody and to control your people. And it's, it's very hands-on and pragmatic, but it's, it's not... It's not servant leadership, let's just say that. It's not, um, it's not necessarily the right way to govern. It's what Machiavelli wrote to the prince to say, this is what seems to work. I've done my homework and this is what seems to keep people under control. Anyway, even by Machiavelli, who bemoans the, quote, necessity of vice in a successful prince. So he even agrees not only that there is virtue in vice, but that vice is evil and vice should be avoided. And virtue should be promoted. And even, even Machiavelli, who doesn't even care about this stuff all that much, says it's really unfortunate that you can't be more virtuous, but you're going to have to have some vices in order to be a powerful prince. So we know all these authors are saying, and that's why, and I'll, we get into this in level three, but I can talk about it a little bit on another podcast is this worldview, I did an introduction to worldviews as postmodernism, is telling us, and it's not the first time that declining civilizations have tried to promote to their people that there's no right and wrong and there's no good and evil. It's as old as dirt, you know. But the great thinkers who had impact, even when, you know, the, I mean, most of these aren't even, only a handful are even like devoted Christians, they're of different belief systems and they're totally on completely different sides. Like 
politically, you know, is it nature? Is it nurture? How should societies be built? What governmental form is the best? You know, all of those kinds of things. They still agree. There's a right and wrong. There's virtue and vice. There's good and bad. We should should grab a hold of the virtues and develop our virtue. Become a person of good character by honoring and living according to virtuous principles. Okay. So what these authors did is they, this is so fascinating to me. So they divided the virtues. So there's a set of virtues called the natural virtues or the moral laws, the moral code or the cardinal virtues. They're um, one of the ways that one of the authors, I think it might've been Aristotle said that they're for happiness here and now. They're, they're the behaviors that are most likely to help you have a successful life. Uh, this says, virtue itself is a reference to a more ultimate good happiness. For them, the virtues are ordered to happiness as means to an end. So for a lot of these ancient authors, you w- well, and even modern authors, you would be virtuous so that you could be happy. And you would live according to these natural virtues or this moral code. And there's essentially four or five that most of the authors agreed on. And they don't mean what we mean by them today. So it's important to look at the original definition. And I can, I mean, Aristotle goes into them. I can give a podcast on each one of them if you're interested. And you can let me know if that's something you want me to do. But of course, like I said, I got turned on to this because of patience. Anyway, so these five are temperance, courage, justice, and prudence. And the prudence is the common sense that governs them. So you must be temperate, courageous, and, and judicious. And use those, live those virtues in a prudent way in order to have this carnal happiness. That's what's going to make you a happy person here on earth. Now, Aristotle has his whole ethics. This is also called ethics in the ancient world. These natural virtues are ethics. It's another word for it. And he goes into more of them and he talks about how the right virtue, the right ethic is in the middle of two extremes. And that's a really fascinating way of looking at them. And then there's another class of virtues that some of the authors get into. Even Plato and Aristotle touch on them. They're the intellectual virtues. These are usually cited as art, science, and understanding. Sometimes wisdom is included. Sometimes wisdom is a replacement for understanding. These intellectual virtues play a secondary role. Okay, let me read this part to you. The division of the virtues into moral and intellectual leads in Aristotle's analysis. Okay, so we have these cardinal and intellectual virtues. The cardinal or moral virtues or moral code are meant to help you be happy as a person in this life. And the intellectual virtues play a secondary role. This is what Adler said about it. The implication is simply that a man may be good as a scientist or good as an artist by the acquisition of these virtues, but he is not made good as a man 
by these virtues, nor do they enable him to lead a good life and achieve happiness, as do the moral virtues accompanied by prudence. And this kind of goes hand in hand with the concept that we teach at the Mission Driven Mom about how when you live certain principles, you get, there's certain, there's just certain outcomes attached. So you can be not virtuous in your person. So maybe there's a man who is dishonorable in his marriage. He cheats on his wife. But when it comes to business, he lives the business principles impeccably. He's good to his word and he builds up systems and he places people in their right roles and and he he leads with example, blah, 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 whatever those things are. He watches his money very carefully and he leverages and he invests and he's financially successful. And there's a lot of confusion around what it means to be a good person because we don't teach the virtues this way. I think it's so much cleaner and clearer to understand what it means to be virtuous within this context, which is historically how it was done, which 150 years ago, if we were in a college in the United States of America, or maybe even in Britain, we would have been taught virtue and vice by reading some of these original writings. We would have had these conversations as students to help us better understand the difference between being a happy person and living the good life and having results in the sciences or in the arts because you are virtuous, you know, you're, you're paying a price in the arts and you live certain principles. You honor this virtue of science and so you get results. Now there's a third class of virtues and these are sometimes called the theological virtues or the supernatural virtues. And I really liked that supernatural classification because it's really easy to see the distinction. There's the natural for the natural man, the person on earth that wants to be happy. And so they live certain virtues, the person who wants to be successful. So they live intellectual virtues. They study hard. They grow their mind. They're really brilliant. And so they can have success in a career or the supernatural values. And I want to read you this as well. I loved this. I'm sure you can guess what these supernatural values are. They're pretty straightforward. Faith, hope, and charity. And there are several great books authors, especially the Christian ones, that break these down and talk about these. They are indispensable to lift man's life to a plane and direct it to a goal which exceed his nature. I thought that really just that sentence helps clear up this idea so well. It's like you can live these carnal good virtues. You can be a humanist, right? We've got the humanist manifesto. We don't want any of that supernatural stuff, but we believe in mankind and we still want to be good people and we want to make the world a better place. So we're going to focus on what's here and now, what's on this earth, what seems pertinent and important to us in the moment. And you can totally do that. And you can live certain virtues and you can be a pretty good virtuous person and you can be happy because you are just and you are prudent and you are temperate and you have courage 
And there's other virtues that Aristotle and other authors teach as well that we would agree with that would make a person a good person, someone that we could look up to, someone that would have something to teach us, and someone that would be leading a life that was stable. They, you know, they used their practical good sense. They treated each other, they treated others properly because they were just, etc. And so they're having success in the here and now in the natural world with natural virtues. And then you've got those that pay a price to live the intellectual virtues. And so we see them having certain types of success, living certain laws, obeying certain, you know, principles within the realm of that virtue. And then we have this third class of faith, hope, and charity that lift a man out of the pursuit of his happiness alone or his happy or the happiness of the people closely attached to him. And he rises, I love this, indispensable to lift man's life to a plane and direct it to a goal which exceed his nature. I have a book called Who Cares? And it's an extensive study on charity work. And I can't remember if they just did the United States or they did Europe or Canada, what what countries that they focused on. But they just studied and studied who it was that gave more money away, that was more involved in local charity work, that was trying to help their neighbor, whose life was lifted up outside of just them and theirs and their immediate wants and needs and being successful in the natural world to a supernatural plane where their life was lifted up higher beyond themselves. And it's predominantly, well, faith, faithful people, people of faith. And I think it even concludes that it's, Christians are even the ones at the, at the, that give the very most. But even that aside, you definitely see in the religious theological codes of many of the major religions around the world, charity is, you know, a tithe. That kind of idea is a fundamental principle. This, this way of thinking about virtue really, for me, cleans up my own thinking and helps me have a frame of reference for loving people, again, for understanding them better, for meeting them where they are, for validating every good thing they do, whatever plane that they're living in, whatever level of virtue they're acquiring to. It is worthwhile. It's worth the effort. Now, in this, I'm just going to give you kind of a few more awesome quotes from both of these books to just kind of ponder, think about over the next few weeks, and then I'll start up some other podcasts on some of the virtues and go into more detail there. I think it's interesting here, there's a little note about in the chapter on principle, because principle is one of the great 102 great ideas that's in the great books. Most authors have talked about principles in one way or another throughout Western history. And it, it mentions briefly that it is considered a virtue to have an understanding of first principles. So I thought that was really cool. Now, one of the things that these great authors also talk about is that, you know, there's a, there's a debate about, okay, how do we become more virtuous? Is it by nature? Is it by habit? Is it by learning? And they kind of, most of them kind of come to agree that it's probably all three. 
he talks about how both Plato and Aristotle agreed that all three of these are important, but they both also mention divine causes help lift us out of ourselves and help us be more virtuous as well. Socrates talks about the gift of God and Aristotle mentions divine causes. I love this in particular because, well, Lewis talks about this as well, about how we must be taught what the virtues are and that they're attainable and that they're important to pursue. Some of it is a bit intuitive. Certainly we can reason it out from first principles and discover those principles for ourselves. But every, you know, civilization has had some of, and you can see those core virtues, especially courage and justice. Most civilizations have really adhered to those when they were, you know, in their, in their peak in a good place. But it talks about how education should consist in training the first instincts of virtue in children, a harmony of the soul as taken as a whole. The harmony of the soul as taken as a whole is virtue, and it is training in respect of pleasure and pain, whereby we are led to hate what we ought to hate and love what we ought to love. C.S. Lewis actually talks about that idea a lot, and it's really important that education train us in the several virtues, what they are, why they matter, and we make it a goal in life to be more virtuous and to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to have virtue. One of the questions that comes up often in the great books is, what is the good of virtue? Why should we care? And there's a couple answers that are given. One of them already was given, many of the authors say, because that's what makes us happy. This kind of goes back to Blackstone. I think I talked about this in my Intro to Principles series, one of my very favorite quotes. In fact, I mentioned it in a Facebook Live just this week about that as we live God's laws, the natural law, we become happier. So it's that same idea, but we're talking about it in a little bit different frame of reference, specifically in certain virtues we should all acquire. And some of us, to to some of us, some virtues are going to come more naturally than others. And so we have to be patient with ourselves as we strive to be more virtuous. But one of the cool answers that Marcus Aurelius gives to this question is that virtue is its own rewards. In fact, he goes on to say that the virtues are not only self-rewarding, but they are the only things in which a good man can take delight. They're kind of like this signal that someone is truly good, that they delight in being virtuous. They want to be as virtuous as they can, and they're always striving to be. Now, Hobbes gives a little bit different take on this, which is really fascinating. Locke says that virtue and Uh, that God has joined virtue and public happiness together, which is really a lot like what Blackstone said. Hobbes said, from proposing a list of virtues which derive their goodness from the natural law. So they're talking about, okay, yes, the virtues are drawn from the natural law. He said, all men agree on this. Now, Hobbes is not all that, just a few hundred years old. And he's read the great books all the way back. And he's saying, you know, All men agree that there's a natural law and that virtues are drawn from natural law. And it's a foregone conclusion that we should try to be virtuous people. And there's, in fact, there's even some fundamental virtues that are so clear and so universally agreed upon that we can just go ahead and start there to develop those virtues. He writes, 
Here's an example that peace is good. And therefore, all also the ways or means of peace, which are justice, gratitude, modesty, and equity, and mercy, and the rest of the laws of nature are good. That is to say, moral virtues and their contrary vices are evil. The science of virtue and vice, therefore, is the true doctrine of the laws of of the true doctrine of the laws of nature is true moral philosophy. So this idea that, in fact, the cause of virtue, according to Hobbes, is the natural law commanding men to do whatever is required for peace and self-preservation. So we all agree that peace is good, that it's a virtue we should we should attend to, that we should work toward as individuals, as societies, and it's drawn from the natural law. We do not acquire or preserve virtue by the help of external goods, but external goods by the help of virtue. So that's Aristotle. So he says, we don't go get stuff, you know, build up all these things that we want, and then we're going to be virtuous. Those things actually follow the person that's virtuous. It kind of reminds me of, and this is just, I don't know, maybe a weird example, but uh, The Millionaire Next Door really blew my mind the first time I read it because the whole first part of the book is just basically, it's not even all that super readable, but it's a whole bunch of stats and reports on who are the millionaires next door, who are the upper middle class in America that are millionaires, what are they like? And it's so interesting because they're more virtuous (laughs) They're predominantly individuals who are married, who are faithful to their partners, who have a few children that they're providing for and responsible for. They live well below their means. They treat their employees good. They're usually owners. And they live financial principles. They live relation, you know, some relationship principles. Like they're, they're, they take on quite a bit of responsibility and they lead out and they become millionaires. And so there's this, argument to be made. Now you've got the super duper rich and often they get their money the wrong ways. Maybe not often, but you know, regularly they get their money the wrong ways. And so it's just kind of one more validation that as you strive to be a virtuous person, to be impeccable with your word, to, to, to keep your commitments, to work hard at things, to take on responsibility, you just become more virtuous and then external goods will follow. That's Aristotle's argument. This is Kant. He has a different take as well, which is really fascinating. He says, the goal of virtue is not happiness, but through doing one's duty. Morality, he says, is not properly the doctrine of how we, is not properly the doctrine how we should make ourselves happy, but how we should become worthy of happiness. So happiness isn't something we automatically get or something that we're owed or something that we can guarantee that we will get, but we live virtuous lives to, we do our duty in order to be worthy of being happy. Under the moral law, to be happy is not a duty, but to be worthy of happiness is a duty. To strive to be virtuous so that the world is a little bit better because you're on the planet, so that your society is a little more virtuous because you're virtuous is a duty. And he's not the only one that says that's a duty. It's a moral responsibility. In fact, he might even make the argument that it's one of our, you know, we talked in in the principles of government about natural rights and natural duties. 
Kant would probably make the argument that it's a natural duty to strive to be as virtuous as you can. He said, it is the moral strength of a man's will and his obedience to duty. So we all need to do our duty by striving to be virtuous. This is Marcus Aurelius. Virtue is its own end, and by deserving well of men, it's also its own reward. We mentioned that. Montesquieu then and Mill also talk about how absolutely essential virtue is for a Republican government. I mean, this is just practical. This is just looking back on Republican forms of government, and they always fell into uh, a monarchical, mon- monarchical or tyrannical governmental form as they became less virtuous. So it's just a corollary factual thing that you can just study historically that Republicans cannot, Republican government cannot exist without virtue. Mill says the most important point of excellence which any form of government can possess is to promote the virtue and intelligence of the people themselves. And then it goes on and finishes out the article by talking about how the government cares about citizens that perpetuate its form. So you can look at different governments. So you might say, oh, well, how can that be? Well, if you look at different governments and you realize that if I'm Mao or if I'm George Washington, I, I am perpetuating a certain governmental form. And so I need certain people in my country who want that form to perpetuate. So the government is always trying to create certain types of citizens to perpetuate its form. And early on in America, I mean, you can read from almost all the founders that talked about, okay, we have a Republican form. We need to teach our people what that looks like. It means that they have to understand government, that they have to be willing to be the mechanisms of government, to serve locally, to serve at the state level, to make the the form happen. And they need to be virtuous people. A famous quote, Benjamin Franklin, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. That's what he meant. If you'll stay virtuous, you can keep it. If you won't, you can't. And so the government doesn't always promote virtue. And the government doesn't always provoke, promote people being good. All they're trying to do is have citizens that will help them stay in power or help that governmental form per- persist. So if you have really virtuous leaders that are promoting the most equality for the most people and and promoting Republican forms, they will encourage the people to be virtuous, if that makes sense. But they won't if it doesn't serve their ends as a governmental form. A few words from C.S. Lewis always helps us to, he reiterates how important these different divisions of virtue are. In fact, he didn't, use, he didn't talk about that in, in his uh, fireside talks, but when he compiled Mere Christianity, he said, there's a different way to look at Christian morality, and it's a better way, and it's the great book's way. And so you need to know that there's these natural, he calls them the seven virtues, which are the four cardinal and the three theological. That's the terms he's using. You can use natural or supernatural. But he has, he has something important to say about the virtues. He says, they ought to be, there's, they ought to be, that ought to be noticed. There is a difference between doing some particular just or temperate action and being a just or temperate man. And some of the great books authors make this distinction as well, that the government cares about your actions, but God cares about your moral choices. 
And he cares about you striving to be a more virtuous person. And it's important too, I think, to point out that those supernatural, as the supernatural is above the natural, those supernatural or theological virtues are above the natural. They are harder. They are elevated. They're a higher road. They require, especially in a society that doesn't perpetuate that way of thinking, it's a, it's a more difficult way of living and being. You must believe in things that you can't see. It's not just all materialism and tangible and dependable because it's right here in front of you. But it's the only way to elevate yourself above yourself. And a, you can still be a good, virtuous person. But if you're going to be a mission-driven person, if your mind and heart are going to be elevated above just the needs of you and yours, you need faith, hope, and charity. You need to cultivate those virtues in yourself until they become part of who you are. And God can speak to you and guide you to the places where he can use you to go about doing good and making the world a better place. But you have to cultivate those virtues in yourself. And so I want to end on this note of some of the things that C.S. Lewis says that we can start doing that we need to think about as we're trying to be more virtuous. Someone who is not a good tennis player may now and then make a good shot. What you mean by a good player is the man whose eye and muscles and nerves have been so trained by making innumerable good shots that they can now be relied on. They have a certain tone or quality which is there even when he's not playing. Just as a mathematician's mind has a certain habit and outlook, which is there even when he's not doing mathematics. In the same way, a man who perseveres in doing just actions gets, in the end, a certain quality of character. Now, it is that quality rather than the particular actions that we mean when we talk of virtue. So the culminating point of those four foundational laws of life mission is to be a servant leader. That that you are a certain quality of person. You have so ingrained your life and your heart and your mind with the laws and principles that, that are a prelude to that. You've read scripture. You've been willing to obey God. You've discovered your gifts and talents. You've learned to manage your emotions and your thoughts. You've found principles of relationships and marriage and finance and, and striven to live them the best you can. And you've educated yourself so you can understand the needs of those people around you. You're a certain kind of person. You're a servant leader. People can depend on you. They know that you're going to just do the right thing the best you know how. They're okay if you make mistakes, but they know your intentions are going to be pure. You can be relied on because you're a truly virtuous person. You're a person of proven character. This distinction is important for the following reason. If we thought only of the particular actions, we might encourage some wrong ideas. One is that right actions done for the wrong reasons are okay. Now, they're probably better than not doing the right thing. They're definitely better for the people around you. But if becoming a virtuous person is about becoming a, a certain kind of person, then when we do the right thing for the wrong reason, because we have a gun to our head, because someone's forcing us, because we don't want to go to jail, it doesn't make us a virtuous person. We did the right action, but we didn't do it for the right reason. And so it doesn't develop us into a better person.
The second one is that God doesn't really just want obedience. He wants a certain kind of person. And to become that certain kind of person, we do have to develop ourselves in virtue and grow in virtue. Another important point that he makes that I'll end on is that these aren't new. I mean, he's just saying what I started with. We've come full circle. Dr. Johnson said people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. The golden rule is older than the Bible. The golden rule is as old as we are, that you should do as you would be done by. We don't, the great moral teachers just really remind us of what we need to do. And they don't introduce new moralities. They just teach these virtues. So that went a little longer than I intended. Thanks for hanging in there with me. It was really fascinating to dive a little deeper into these first principles of virtue and vice and to look at how old and established they are, how critical they are to our self-education, to the education of our families, that we must marry these first principles of virtue and vice with all the other things that we do and strive to be as virtuous as we can by clinging to these first principles because that's the way to happiness, because they're a reward in and of themselves and because they make us the kind of person that we really would love to be because they're the source, especially those supernatural, supernatural virtues are the source of the greatest joys. And we can only reach that joy by becoming that kind of person. So thank you for joining me. I hope you'll plug in in the next few months as we go through the specifics on some of these virtues and look at what some of these authors have said about how to develop the virtues in ourselves. It has been life-changing for me. I say this often, but so life-changing for me to see the world through this lens and to recognize that any principle lived has a blessing attached and that as I strive to understand and live principles, I see over the last 20 years, many of my weaknesses and bad traits kind of shed off, relationships healed, finances healed, and that can only happen as we embrace truth and strive for a principle-centered life. If you've not seen our new website at themissiondrivenmom.com, I encourage you to head over there. It's beautiful. There's new messaging. There's new opt-ins. There's a whole page on the book. It turned out so great. I'm really proud of it. If, if you've not joined our Facebook group, we've got regular weekly Facebook Lives going up now. Some of them are turning to podcasts. Some of them are not. This is a podcast that won't find its way there. So you've got to probably be both places to get everything we're sharing out. And we would love to see you there. We've got some awesome interviews coming up, some discussions with the leadership team members, and we're doing our Principles of Government series there as well. So thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you have a blessed day and I will see you next time.